And we say good morning. Good morning. Do you guys feel like fools for Christ's sake today? As Paul called himself in 1 Corinthians 4. That's in our text today. We have a long text today if you've looked at the verses from 6 to 21. All kind of related. As a matter of fact, it's related to where we've been for four chapters. As Paul continues this on, he's been addressing the Corinthians there in this church that um, they are very prideful. Such a matter of pride and it takes a great deal of rebuking and Paul certainly does in uh, this section. And pride really is what every person has to deal with. We have to battle it constantly. It's an ongoing thing because it's about self. And self always wants to raise its ugly head over everything else, uh, above all over God, but even other people. And so what pride does is it causes factions, it causes divisions. And uh, God had um, sent leaders to this church at different times, and they were great leaders, great men of God. And, of course, as we've been saying, they favored one or another, and they lifted them up. The deal is, is what we looked at last week, God had gifted them all. And they all had their own way of delivering the gospel to the people and having them grow up in the Lord. So uh, the problem was that they were elevating servants when they uh, should not have, and others they denigrated. And so when we look at that, we go, my, they have a problem there. And so we see how Paul has dealt with this so far in the first uh, few verses of chapter 4, for instance, where we looked at last week. Um, why were they judging these stewards, these servants? Why were they putting up uh, higher than they should have been or vice versa? Uh, they had inflated egos. That's really what it was about. They had a high view of themselves. They had a high view of the way that they thought the world and its philosophy along with uh, the, the teaching was. And so they brought their own inflation in there. And, and what Paul is going to do is deflate these huge egos they have. And it's going to take a lot of chapters in this um, epistle to do that. But we see quite a bit of it right here in, in this section. Um, we saw last week, God gives rewards to ones who are faithful. They're just faithful. They're, they're just stewards. They're just servants. They really are not to be any more than that. They are low-level galley slaves. And so Paul keeps bringing forth humility. They must be humble. And they're not to be exalted. And so that's an issue. The, the humility is, is the issue. Their sin of conceit is uh, a supreme example here of their problem. But the opposite of that is our Lord and Savior. And He is the supreme example of humility, isn't He? As He lowered Himself to come here to the earth to die for us as a matter of obedience and God's plan. So, Paul is an example of one who is following Christ, who is obedient to the Word, filled with God's Spirit, and he's wanting them, who he had given the Word of God to, so they, they would be born again, he wants them to follow Him. as Just like He's climbing up a mountaintop and He says, come on, just follow the way. Just, just watch me take, take uh, my steps and just follow those. So Paul is uh, quite an example. And the others are too. Apollos and others. But I think a very characteristic of a Christian is humility. That is a characteristic. We do have that put into us. Uh, but um, it's so elusive, as we've been saying. It's there, and the moment we recognize it, then it's gone. And so we have to be repenting over that and confessing that and then saying, Lord, give me a spirit of humility again. It, um, it's a new nature that we have. But uh, it, it's, um, it's very difficult in this battle with the flesh. So if that's the way that Christ is, and it is, and that's what He did, then he expects his followers to develop this humility also. And so this is what Paul is doing here as he addresses this. This had to be a tough crew to preach to. Of course, in this instance, he's writing uh, to them in a letter. So we move to uh, verse 6. 
6 through 8, and I'll read that. That'll be our first section here. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. We'll stop there. Paul really has to come in there and lambast these Corinthians. He really hits this hard. They thought they were something when they really were nothing. You know, they, they really thought they were up there. They thought they had arrived. And so he's very pointed in his rebuke of them. There is no doubt that Paul is very angry at um, what he's bringing forth to them. This is not a, just a, uh, a spew of anger out of his mouth. But this is what's happening. So he says, now these things, brethren, I've transferred to myself and Apollos for you things. These things. Well, what are these things? Well, we can look at the illustration so far that he's used. If you're to back up in the first section uh, in this chapter, the first five verses, uh, Paul was showing what a true servant of God is. Paul was showing um, that they were under rowers, that they were table waiters. They will get their reward in due time, but that's really all they are. And they serve people for edification, that they would be built up, not puffed up, that's, that's just hot air. But edification is really being built up in the Lord, trusting in Him. So uh, they're not to be seen higher than what they really are. And, uh, and they were. So in chapter 3, he gave some pictures too. Um, not only are they servants and stewards, but in chapter 3, we see that they are farmers. Um, Paul says, I planted Apollos water. Uh, others come along do other things. Or we see builders in chapter 3. Like building on a building. Building one foundation. On one foundation, uh, that being Jesus Christ. Servants, stewards. He keeps giving these illustrations, doesn't he? Now, they didn't have PowerPoint. They didn't have a screen on a projector to put those pictures up there there for to see. But as graphically as he describes it, I think he does a lot better job than any kind of pictures could have done, right? And he brings the detail of what, what those are. But pictures are worth a thousand words, and Paul doesn't have to give a thousand words here as he brings those along. Uh, they're to be, uh, if they're servants, they're to be humble, they're to be trustworthy, they're to be faithful, right? Submissive. So, uh, Apollos saw himself as a lowly servant of Christ. That's what Paul showed himself, and that's what he wants them to learn. Well, that's one thing that they are to be. That's where they're to be at. But now let's really take a look to see where they were at at that time. They were arrogant. Good uh, modern term to use today. You've, you've known people that are arrogant. Um, and so they have to be taught up, taught or how they're supposed to view all of this. And uh, he uses a word, they were puffed up. Right at the end of verse 6. They were puffed up. Not too hard to understand, is it? And it means to inflate, to blow up, just a bunch of air. It's fluff. And Paul uses this throughout this epistle on the Corinthians. This is not the only time that he's going to say puffed up. Look at verse 18. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. And then also in verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. So right there in that section, he uses the word puffed up. Keep going. Turn to chapter 8, verse 1. Apparently, they must have been very puffed up in Corinth. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Chapter 13, verse 4. Oh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. He had to teach them love there in Corinth, didn't he? 
Um, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. So if you really have a love for people, that's a mark of a Christian. They are not puffed up. Later on, Second Corinthians, we don't have to turn there in chapter 12, verse 20. Same thing. Self-esteem, they had. They didn't have any problem with the self-esteem. Man, they were blown up. <laughs> and uh, they really thought they were something. And they just kept pouring more fuel upon themselves and getting more puffed up. By ready to blow up, and the, the unity is torn apart there in Corinth because of this puffed up. Now, we go back to chapter 4, and Paul asks some questions. Verse 7 For who makes you differ from another? Or like this Why do you think you're better? That's the idea. What makes you think you are better than others? How come you think your group that you're in is better than other groups? We're we're all redeemed by the same Lord. You have nothing to boast of. For who makes you differ from another? Then he asks another question. There are three right in a row. Boom, boom, boom. And what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that was not given to you? Everything we have is given to us, isn't it? And somebody might say, yeah, but I worked for it. Yeah, but really, where did it really come from? God gave it to us. Puts it on loan or whatever. Go to James 1, 17. This is a great verse to always remember. Keeps things into context. The verse before that, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Evidently, that's what people do. They they get deceived and forget where things come from. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift comes from above. Everything is from Him. Everything's from the Father. And by the way, he says it's of his own will. Did you catch that in verse 18? Of his own will. Look at this. He brought us forth. That's a good verse for people who say free will. Here we go. Have you thought of this verse much? I kind of forget about this one. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's the greatest gift, isn't it? Jesus Christ and bringing salvation to us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's how he did it. He brought forth the gospel, the truth, that we might be kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he says, even your own salvation and who you are, that was all by God. There we go again. We don't own anything, right? Now he asked a third question. We realize that we didn't give ourselves life, we didn't give ourselves food, the protection, the guidance. The talents that we have, the country we're born in. We didn't even choose that, did we? And uh, the education that we've had. God, God has done all this. Everything we have is on loan from the Lord. So the next question would be obvious as he says, now if you did indeed receive it, if you actually want to be so bold to say you know, that you didn't make it and you know you received it, well, then why do you boast as if you had not received it like you created it? So the third question is, why are you boasting as if you created the gifts yourselves? That you did it. Why are you boasting that you did The first two uh, questions, obviously they would know what to answer and here they should too if they had someone, what someone else had given them. And he's already kind of pointed that out. Their boasting is coming from where? Pride. Their selves. Pride is very deceiving. And that's what James kind of was talking about. Do, do not be deceived here. Realize where this comes from. So Paul is breaking down every defense they have. He comes along, makes that statement here in verse 6, and then in verse 7. Boom! 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 They don't have a chance. Those three questions just take them down to ground level. They have no excuses. And now what he's going to do is start going into sarcasm. Since he's put them down, now he's going to make them see where this is really at. He's determined 
to make them understand that their sin of pride is seriously evil and wicked. It's awful, folks. We all deal with it. Don't kid yourselves. We have to deal with pride every day. That's what was the downfall of um, Lucifer. And that was the downfall of Adam and Eve and every person that's ever been born since. They battle with... This is the number one sin. Number one enemy. Right here. Ourselves. So all the praise and honor goes to the Lord because we have nothing to boast about, do we? Nothing. Nobody else but the Lord gets that. So here's now our sarcasm. And we've kind of seen it here in this this verse 8 already. We read that you are already full, exclamation point. You are already rich. You're fooled. You're rich. I can imagine if he was talking in front of them how this would be. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I can wish you you did reign that we might reign with you. This is Paul's elite sarcasm. He is going to drive home the point. He hits it with the questions. Man, Paul would have been a great lawyer. You know what? Of course, he's inspired by the Spirit, but God is using that talent that he's already been given. It's not of Paul's anyway, is it? It's all of God. He's using this instrument God is. It's so pointed, and it comes right in the face. And people cannot answer this the way that they would like when Paul is done with it. Sarcasm is used a few times in Scripture. It uh, can be used for the good to uh, make the point. And Paul has to get to this point here. 1 Kings 18.26 Pride is a terrible sin. 1 Kings 18.26 What we're looking at is a little bit of sarcasm. Here you have Elijah, Mount Carmel, And then you have the pagans worshiping their God, trying to call up help from Him. Verse 25, Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many. He's far outnumbered. It's just Him and the Lord. (laughs) And call on the name of your God. Okay, it's your bull. Uh, Call on the name of your God. But don't put any fire under it. Have Him do it. I challenge you. So they took him up on it. Okay, we got a powerful God, they're saying. So they took the bull, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon. Let's say at least four or six hours. Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. There's no such thing as Baal out there, is there? There's no other gods. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. They're just doing everything they can to try this, get this thing going. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them. Don't you love this part? And said, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and he must be awakened. <laughs> So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah did his thing and showed who his God was. But did you see the sarcasm that he used on them? Oh, I guess your God is asleep. Took some kind of a vacation. Went on a journey. He he must be meditating. (laughs) I think he got the point uh, home to them, didn't he? Let's uh, let's go to another one. In Psalm 2. You have to love this one. You, You guys know this one too. In Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. 
Now, you know, that's going on today. You have the leaders of all the world and they're going to get together and they're going to bring a one world. They're going to bring peace. They don't need God. Matter of fact, they write Him off. They try to take Him out of uh, Washington, D.C., try to take Him out of the schools, take Him out of prayer, you know, whatever. You know, they're not going to do that. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep pleasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. That's Christ. It's going to show the victory has already been won. He's already there was no battle against him. They, they think they're plotting things against him, against his people, and uh, they're going nowhere with this. What a joke. Now, Paul uses this same kind of sarcasm because they thought they had already arrived. They made it. They're there. You you would have thought these people were the the greatest people, the most wonderful people, the most intelligent people in all the world. (laughs) At that time, I'm sure that that Greek Empire and Roman Empire that developed uh, made people think, hey, we are in a huge city. We have Athens here. We have all this intelligence. Look at us. No people have ever been as great as us. Now, do you think our nation has had that tendency to do that? We kind of forget about uh, there are other people that God has all across the world too, don't we? Uh, You know, they really thought of themselves that way. They really thought they were something. Look in Revelation 3.17. You remember the Laodicean church? Remember reading about that, right? Oh, pride is uh, so wicked. Now, they were neither hot nor cold, right? God says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. You're, luke, you're lukewarm. You're not cold or hot. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing. They don't need anything. They don't need God, really. And then he says, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They are poor, but they think they are loaded rich. He says, you're nothing. This is to the Laodicean church. I know your works. I know what you're really about. Outwardly, did they ever look good? Oh, yeah. It was all a bunch of fluff. There wasn't any substance underneath there. Sure looked good on the outside. So John writes that to that church. That's the way the Corinthians were in this church here. And, and he says that uh, you are kings. You have reigned as kings. Now, what did Paul call himself earlier in this chapter? Servant. The lowest menial position that anybody could get. That under roller. The hardest job. No slave wanted this job. And Paul called himself that. Then he called himself a, a table waiter. Best you can do, Paul? You're the apostle. And you're calling yourself that? You need to elevate yourself a little bit. These Corinthians are going to think lowly if you if you go around calling yourself a slave, a servant, a steward. They're kings. Paul calls them kings. You're kings. You're much way above us. <laughs> See the sarcasm that goes on? You guys are just great, aren't you? You're fantastic. It was like the kingdom had already begun. He says, I wish it would, then we could all rejoice in this. But you guys are the kings here. If it already started, we'd all be wearing our crowns. You guys are the ones wearing the crowns. You're so great. You're so wonderful. There's a sarcasm I'm doing. They had their crowns, but the apostles didn't. They were slaves. He says, oh man, I wish I could be coronated with you guys. You guys are so 
high and lifted up, we'd all be rich and resting. Do you see where pride got them? Do you see where this puffed up attitude got? You can say, well, why does Paul just keep going at it? We've been looking at this for week after week after week. I keep reading chapter after chapter and it's saying along the same kind of lines. This is the battle. This is the struggle. We're so consumed with ourselves. So there's part one. That was them. Now we have to take a look at uh, the humility of the apostles, Paul and the other guys. Let's look at their humility. We saw the pride and the arrogance of the Corinthians. 9 through 13. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. There we go. There's our title. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world. The offscoring of all things until now. Boy, that's a load. Paul says we are spectacles. There's quite an image that Paul is drawing for us here. And they knew what that meant. This word is theatron. And as I say that word, is it starting to click for you? Theater. Theater. You go to a theater, you go to see a show. The word is spectacle here. I've been made a spectacle. We have been made a spectacle. Paul paints a vivid pictures with bright colors and they at that time knew exactly what he was talking about. It's used of the ones who were brought into the arena. Remember in Rome they had the Colosseum? Well, they had these arenas in different places. And these people that were brought there were, be, uh, were to be condemned just as criminals. They were to be condemned there. The last ones were brought out for the grand finale. And so Paul says, displayed us, the apostles, last. We're the last ones. You know, it's bad enough to have those other guys in there being eaten up and tortured. But in this sense, he says, we're the grand finale. We're the real spectacle for the show. God brought out the apostles to be a spectacle. To, to, to be able to really put God's display on glory, as far as His glory is concerned. Theatron, spectacle. When a Roman general would win a victory, a major victory in battle, it would come into the city, it was celebrated as a triumph. The general would be all decked out in his military array, all those medals just shining, the splendor of this great military victor. And they'd have a parade come right through the city, right downtown with the officers and the soldiers. And behind them, guess who is on display? The prisoners in chains and shackles. These were the ones that had been defeated. They're going to be put on display for everybody to see and everybody to mock. These are the enemies. And so they, they are put on display and you can see, you can imagine how beaten up they are already. Bloody mess. And they were under a sentence because they're leading them to where? The arena. 
They're leading them to death. They're going to be taken to the arena and they're going to be wild beasts that they will fight with. This is the picture that Paul is drawing. We are a spectacle. A conquered prisoner condemned to death. And this is in front of Christians that they are spectacles. At first it says both to angels and to men. It's, it's to everybody. Matter of fact, the world looks as Christians today like that if we're really living the Christian life. Uh, they don't envy what we have unless they really are in a need, right? Uh, Moffat translated this. This is pretty good. This is a good word picture here. God means us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena. That's where Paul puts himself. You, do you think being a third level galley slave was bad? Now he's gone to the extreme of saying we are the gladiators that are getting ready to go into the arena to get ripped and mauled to death. Fed to the lions. Angels are looking at this. Men are looking at us. Now, there could be a literalness to that. There was. That, that did happen to the church. The early church. Our brothers and sisters who we're going to run into one of these days, they're the ones that were eaten up by lions. Some of them. Many of them were. And then you can think of Fox's Book of Martyrs and uh, all the ones that were there living for God's glory and they died for His glory. But uh, angels are looking down and they're astonished at the suffering for Christ that men and women have. Men are looking on and attributing to them as being fools. Christians are fools for Christ's sake. Now that's that kind of terminology that Paul uses the opposite of. He's already talked about the wise, the so-called wise, the wisdom of the world, and the fools, right? Paul uses that word again. That word is moroi or moronic. They teach us, or they, they see us as morons. <laughs> morons for Christ. <laughs> that sounds so bad. But that's the way the world thinks until they see a great need. They think this is ridiculous, this Christianity. Go to Acts 17, 18. Uh, boy, they sure thought Christ was ridiculous when they did what they did to Him. And then the early apostles. And then Paul and the other apostles. Look what all happened to them, right? You can't expect too much difference even in today's society, even though we have it easy today. But um, really, the history of the church has been Pretty difficult if you look at the suffering. 17, verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the wisdom of the world, right, encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? <laughs> Others said, He seems to be proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They're, they're babblers. Now this is at Athens. You guys remember that? This is the capital of the world for philosophy and all the wisdom that it has. <laughs> they're babblers. Talking about some kind of foreign god. Some kind of <laughs> resurrection. Oh, they're making fun of Paul. He preached the gospel. So he came out of Athens and he went to Corinth. Very humbled. And he continued to preach Christ crucified, knowing full well that many people are going to be laughing at him. Why would it change today? Why would people think highly of us because we're Christians? Now, they might admire the fact that we live differently sometimes, but a lot of times that makes them even more mad because you're so self-righteous. 
So don't expect people to receive you as being great. Probably like a fool to many. I hate to say that. I'm just taking from the text here and saying if that happened to Paul, maybe I'm not being enough like Paul. Maybe I need to have a lot of people really angry at me. Not Christians. But that happens too. (laughs) Because they were very angry at Paul whenever he got done with this. Many probably were. Paul is saying he is the lowest of society. The, The apostles lived in the lowest levels of society. While they were living like slaves, the Corinthians were living like what? Kings! It shouldn't have been. It should not have been at all. Deprived. They didn't really have homes. You look at the Apostle Paul as he's going about from town to town. Sure, in Corinth, he stayed there a year and a half. Most of you probably have lived longer than in your present house than a year and a half. But he, you know, he made tents and, and he worked. Um, Matthew eight twenty, Jesus said, "Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head." Didn't really have a home when he did his ministry. He hung around, stayed stayed with Peter sometimes. A lot of times they were traveling about and slept underneath the stars. Verse 11 says, uh, To the present hour we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed, beaten, and homeless. These are homeless who are preaching the gospel. Most of the homeless that we see today need to hear the gospel. Now, some of them don't want to hear the gospel. Or some of them could be preaching the gospel. I, I don't know. I, but for the most part, most of them need the gospel as much as anybody else. Paul was a homeless person. As he said, beaten, poorly clothed, hungry and thirsting. I don't think he's just making this up to make the story sound good. I'd like to dress it up a little bit and give you a little bit of health, wealth gospel and make us feel a lot better. And just start lying. You know, this this is not really what uh, Paul is about um, right now. He says we're hungry and thirsty, um, clothes um, very poor and been beaten, and we'll have a home. Do you think he was telling the truth? I think so. He gave up everything for Christ. Man, I don't think we have anything to complain about, do we? It's very convicting to me. This is real. This really happened. This is not some little Bible story that we're talking about. This happened. It happened not only to Paul and Apollos and Cephas, many others who were true to the gospel. And if I was in Corinth and I was reading this letter. I would start slipping down in my chair and slipping further down, all the way down to the floor, and I would hope I would go face first, face down before the Lord. If I had that kind of pride that they had in treating Paul the way that he did. You know, in verse 12 it says, And we labor, and the word there is a copy, uh-oh. Labor is like, oh, labor day. Yeah, we labor, we go work. Well, this kind of word is drastic. It's not just saying, hey, we work. We work daily. No, we toil. No, uh, what's a better word? We work to the point of exhaustion. Have you ever been exhausted? Well, that's what Paul did. We And the other apostles. We worked till we were so tired that we didn't have anything left. This, in the Greek world, would have been a terrible thing. This was below their dignity to toil. And so when Paul says, and we labored, we toiled, we kapiaoed, that's what they did. They're going, oh, toiling was for slaves. And that's exactly what Paul is. 
So he's using terms that are matching right up with what he's already talked about. It's not just a working term. We're talking point of exhaustion. Let's go to Acts 18, verse 3. So, because he was of the same trade, he's with um, Priscilla and uh, Aquila here. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So, he toiled doing that while giving the gospel out. Really worked hard. It, it, is, it is real hard. It's hard sometimes. 20, verse 34. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities. I use my hands. And for those who are with me, as I have shown you in every way by laboring, there's that word again, like this, that you must support the weak. He's talking about the ones who are needy. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's that famous verse right there. And if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see it in red letter. I think that's the only line you'll see outside of the Gospels, or at least until you get to Revelation, maybe. But in Acts, there it is. First uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine. For you remember, brethren. Yes, remind everybody. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring. (laughs) You getting tired? Night and day. Why? That we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. He says, we burdened. We, we had a burden. We had the labor. We had the toil. But we didn't want to bring that burden on you. That's why we worked. We didn't want for you to have to give us money. We wanted to give you the gospel. That's why we did it. He tells them to remember that. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. Kind of using labor words here. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And that's not to say that uh, the church is not to support uh, its leaders. and Every pastor has to be bivocational. We're not saying that, but... Paul is saying that um, there was a laboring that he he did, a toiling. And then he says uh, he was reviled, he was persecuted, he was defamed, all for the gospel's sake. Reviled. The apostles literally looked at themselves in their lowest point. They were faithful, they were humble. Uh, they're last here, but they're going to be first in the kingdom. You know, last first and the first last. Yeah, they were put that low. They, we know, they were persecuted, but they said we endure till it was time to be taken. They were defamed. People destroyed their names. There's a disturbing trend, I think, in the church today that goes the opposite. Men of God, the so-called men in the ministry of God, are really moving and living and preaching for one reason. What is it? Money. They want that flow coming out from them, from the poor to them. And it's not about them being defamed. They want to be famous. And we hear of them quite frequently. They're all over the place, aren't they? They want their fame now. But a preacher of the gospel might be defamed if he preaches it like Paul did. People working for money. That's their motive. 
quite different than what Paul preaches here, doesn't it? Last verse. Uh, This is really a picture. This is a word picture. It's so full of word pictures, you could just draw these out here. If I'd had time, I'd had pictures of all these and put them up, but I think the language brings it out. We have made, we've been made as the filth of the world. The offscoring of all things until now. We're the filth. We're the scum. We're the dregs, Paul says here. We're the lowest, we're the most, lowest, most degrading criminals in all the world, Paul says. And this idea of offscoring, this, this is the scraps. It's the offscoring that's from a dirty dish and you scrape that and you throw them away. Now, that's what Paul is saying. That's what he is. That's what they are. Um, you ever burnt potatoes? <laughs> In a pan, you've been frying them, they're burnt there. You try to clean that out. You get all this black-looking stuff. It's like black dirt or whatever. And... You scour that thing off. You get that black out of there and it just goes to the rubbish, doesn't it? You just throw it in the trash can. There it is. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying as he uses this Greek terminology. Pretty graphic, isn't it? Boy, the health, wealth, gospel teachers, would they have problems with this kind of teaching? Do you ever hear them using this text? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where it talks about all the beatings, the whiplashings, the almost drownings out into the sea. Wow! So he's using this term as a most degraded criminal as they would be degrading, as people would be degrading criminals in in the pagan world as uh, they had pagan ceremonies. And they'd be sacrificed. And they would be called the scums and the dregs. So Paul just transfers that on over and says, we're the scums, we're the dregs to you, to everybody else. Now, with that being said, we move into another section. This is number three. Now we've seen where they were at with all their arrogance, and then Paul shows where he and the the other apostles and teachers were at, being as low as they were. They're not just under rowers, now they're the dregs. And then he says, here's the way that I relate to you. Now, he's gone to extremes to explain what he and others have done for them as they go around boasting and being arrogant and think they know everything and are puffed up. He says, I want to tell you something. Now, he balances us out now. He's gone on quite a whiplashing, hasn't he? (laughs) Using this kind of uh, uh, language that he has. All this humility. Now he shows that he's a father. And see that God's word is always a balance. Look at the grace that he has and the care. He doesn't want to come in there and just rip them apart just to be doing it because he's an apostle and they're not. Here's his deal. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. We'll take a few verses here through 17. Uh, We've seen the pictures. We've seen the farmer. We've seen the builders, uh, the fellow workers, the galley slaves, the stewards. And uh, we've seen the the scum and the filth that that he's drawn up. And now he uses the sweet illustration of a father, spiritual father. Now, Paul is going to tell them why he was so rough and stern on them. He loves them just like a father does. And a father really cares. He has to get their attention. So he uses six characteristics of a father. A father, first of all, warns. He warns his children because there are things coming ahead that they don't see. They haven't been around long enough to understand that, and so they don't see that. And he says a father 
is one who puts to mind. Nusateo, to put to mind, to warn. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Why? Not that they walk worthy of God. He's the one that calls you into his kingdom and glory. He says, we're doing this that you would walk worthy. We exhorted you. We charged you. We warned you. Uh, he just doesn't want them to just repent and leave them in shame. But here's where grace comes in, doesn't it? Do we see the gospel that he's, you know, that he's preaching here? He lays down the law of saying, "Hey, here's where you you you're failing where God's standards are." But now here this is, and here's this great grace, and this is how God the Father looks at us too. Sometimes we have to be admonished. There has to be some fathers come admonish or warn us. Or sometimes we have to warn others, don't we? That has to be done. We we want to see correction and change. That's the idea of what uh, warning is here in uh, verse 14. I warn you. I want to be this corrected. And then he says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you might have all these teachers, yet you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Uh, Back in 14, he did call them beloved children. And so we have to back up there and say, okay, a second characteristic is an automatic. And that's that word agape. A true father truly loves his child. And he's going to be gentle. And he's going to be understanding also. So thereafter, all of that, he calls he, he warns them. And he also shows that they are beloved. They are loved. And then in 15, he says, For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. They've been begotten. Or they were born again. He gave them birth in that he brought in the truth. A child must be born before he can be cared for, right? So Paul says, Hey, I came along. I gave you the gospel. And you were born into the kingdom. Paul is one who brought these people to Christ. He begot them. That's why he calls them, uh, he's a father of them. They might have many teachers, but he's their spiritual father. Many of them there became born again because of him. He brought them forth by what? Truth, the gospel. We're to make disciples, aren't we? Go therefore, making disciples. Preaching, teaching the word. Um, he also says he's an example. Verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me, mimic me, follow me, do what I do. You can say, boy, that sounds awful prideful. I've heard people say, hey, um, don't do as I do. You know, listen to the words I say, but don't don't do as I do, though. They're saying, hey, here's one thing, but my lifestyle isn't like it. Christians, you want to make sure that you have a lifestyle that other baby Christians will follow. You want them to see you. And you can say, just like Paul, mimic me, follow me. You can look at me, look at my life. Well, that really hits home, doesn't it? We want to make sure that our life draws people to us. That they would like to follow what we're doing. It's all by the grace of God anyway. Um, He sets the example. Imitate me. Then 17, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. So there he was a father of Timothy, wasn't he? He's the one that brought Christ to him. Ultimately, I mean, he was raised up right by his uh, uh, mother and grandmother. Paul comes along, takes him aside, and gets him into the, all the rest of this. He says, He will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. What I teach, Timothy's going to come along 
Whenever I'm not going to be there, but Timothy's going to teach the same thing I teach. Isn't that the way it should be? We know that when people come in, they should believe what we believe if they come in here and, t- and teach, right? We wouldn't want to be at odds and have different doctrines, have a different Christ or something, right? I mean, so, and, and Paul was very confident in Timothy in that. So, teaching, discipling is teaching the Word of God, isn't it? Uh, Paul did that for 18 months. You want to go back to Acts 18.11? He just didn't bring them to Christ, but he made sure that they knew who Christ was and then they, they'd be able to live it. Acts 18.11 And he continued there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. A year and a half they sat underneath Paul. Whew. You think they had doctrine? Yeah, they had the knowledge. That's what was scaring Paul now because that's what they were bringing up and they were puffed up. Look at the teaching they had. Apollos comes in. Timothy comes in. My! Did they get doctrine? Doctrine can puff you up. It's not that we shouldn't have doctrine. But we must be able to live that. We must continue to have the teaching and then also desire to live that out. One last thing here. And this is uh, a good father will, will discipline his children, won't he? Verse 18. Now some are puffed up, there's that word, as though I were not coming to you. You guys are just all blown up there. It's like, hey, you're not going to be coming. But I will come to you shortly. Oh, man. (laughs) How would you like to have that? Oh, and you're going to go to the woodshed if the Lord wills. He says, I'll be coming if it's God's will. That sounds like in the book of James. We don't do things unless it's God's will, right? And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. They had a lot of words going out there, but Paul was all about the kingdom of God with power. What do you want? And he closes this chapter out with this. Okay, here it is. You have this, or you have this. What do you want? I come to you with a rod. You want me to come to you with a rod? How would you like to have the great apostle Paul come in with a rod? I mean, like this. Or, I can come in love and a spirit of gentleness. Which would you like? <laughs> I know which one I would choose. That I hope I would choose. I don't want Paul to be coming in there with a rod, discipline me with the Word of God. So I'll tell you what, that would be some chastening. And Paul could very well do it. He says, what do you want? Let me do that. Let me do this. A father who loves his children will discipline them. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, Corinthians probably didn't think he was really going to confront them about that. Oh, they didn't know Paul. In Hebrews 12.6, it says, here is what discipline is about. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. So if we're not being disciplined by the Lord, we don't have a father. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it's a good thing. That's the mark of every godly father. And He will admonish His children whom He truly loves. That's the mark of every godly father. The Word of God should be disciplining us or it means to train us. There can be harsh ways and if one is outside the will of God and they're off down here and they're doing some crazy thing, I will guarantee you 
God will use His rod. And a lot of times He uses His church to do that. You think of Matthew 18. Or one can be walking right in that path and He'll be gentle, just kind of making sure that you're you know, staying in that right line. It's a, it's a narrow line. And we walk that path. I don't want to get off the path. To the world, what was Paul? A fool. A fool for Christ. And he allowed himself to be humbled, to be a servant of the Lord. He might have been a spectacle, but he resembled his Savior, didn't he? In his dealings with this wayward church in Corinth, he loved them so much. And you see great balance there. You see the grace there. And so Paul demonstrated all of these elements for what it is to be uh, effective and in his discipling of these spiritual children. And by this, they'd be able to grow up. And so he gives them a stern word, but it is very helpful indeed. And may it be helpful to us as we see God's word desiring for us to keep walking that straight line. Let's pray.